Welcome to Let Me Introduce Myself. My name is Sekou Lalo. And I'm Maxine Paul. And we are pulling back the layers of black male humanity to look at what's true, what's authentic, what's deep. Co-creating space for black men to explore their humanity, blackness, maleness, and everything in between to fully introduce themselves. Brother Side D from Jackson, Mississippi, a solutions-driven black man merges imagination and innovation to chart new paths to equity for the black community. This brother takes pride in making sure his words are followed by his actions. Don't just talk about it, be about it. And the question of the day is, if you can start the world all over again, would you choose to be black or white? Come hear what this brother has to say. You might be surprised what you hear. Join us for another episode of Let Me Introduce Myself. We are pulling back the layers of black manhood. Now, we want to start out and really hear who you are. We want to, like, meet you. Sadi, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure thing. So I'm Sadi Thompson, 84 years old, soon to be 35. Born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. Moved out here to Atlanta about three years ago to take up the trade of digital marketers. So my day-to-day is digital marketing for nonprofits and small businesses. I'm just trying to help them navigate this crazy social and digital world. So we want to rewind this a little bit. The name of this program is Let Me Introduce Myself. And we are about having a conversation with Black men about life as a Black man in the world, in your home, in society, and how that has an impact on your identity. And we think it's important to tell these stories. And particularly now in this context that we're in now, it takes on another dimension. So with that said, I'll kind of go to my question and just ask you, Sadi, how you're feeling today? Like, what are your feelings right now at this moment, your authentic feelings? So, you know, in terms of personally, mentally, physically, I feel great. I tend to be an individual who has this, threshold of happiness. I don't get too low. I also don't get too high. I operate in this kind of happy medium to where it's always more positive than negative. And so I'm generally just, you know, a happy dude and always smiling and joking. I think, you know, in the times that we're living in now, though, I've had to kind of shift that a little bit because although personally I do, you know, have this threshold of happiness, I do understand that, you know, the circumstances we are in are, you know, it's other people who look like me who don't have those same, that same benefit of having that threshold of happiness. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I get to thinking about them and thinking about, you know, my own happiness, I kind of realize sometimes I take that for granted. And so now what I try to do is spend a little bit more time thinking about those who, who can't operate within that same threshold. Mm-hmm. Find ways to get them closer to my threshold. And, you know, sometimes that brings a little stress. Sometimes that brings a little sadness. Because it can be, it seems impossible at times to, to be able to give my happiness to the world. But, you know, it's a day-to-day thing. And, uh, you know, I feel like as long as I, as long as I keep trying, that, that the, little, the little help that I can bring will eventually blossom into, into something bigger than, than what I realize right now. Let me ask, you triggered something for me when you said the threshold of happiness, which I, I like, and I'm also curious where did this kind of threshold of happiness emerge from? Like, where, where did that capacity come from for you? So I think that capacity came from, first of all, growing up in a household where me and my brothers and sister were 
encouraged to kind of do anything we wanted to. So anything we wanted to be, we were given that freedom. We didn't have very, you know, our parents were strict, but they weren't taskmasters. You know, they gave us the freedom to fail, um, mm-hmm. but they also provided us with opportunities mm-hmm. to succeed, right? And so they were a little bit more in the context of things. We weren't middle class by any means, but if we were lower class, we were upper lower class. You know, if we had some financial benefits that we could take advantage of, you know, we didn't have to stress too much about food being on the table, about, you know, being mm-hmm. able to join the basketball team or, you know, pay for recreational events. And so we were given that freedom to explore. And I think our parents never really got super angry at us for messing up. Mm. Yeah, of course, we got some of the same punishments that everybody else got, you know, physically and mentally. But, you know, it was always an explanation for that. It wasn't just like you're going to be punished and that's it. It was Mm. like you're going to be punished, but this is why I'm doing it. And what that allowed was us to try a bunch of different things. And so personally, I saw happiness in that because I felt like I couldn't fail. Right. I felt like... Mm. They always um, provided a parachute. They always provided a safety net. Even if we didn't have a lot of money, we were going to figure a way out of it. So I didn't have any reason to be sad or upset or, you know, anything, any of those emotions for a long period of time because we always found a way out of it. And I think that year over year over year, I think that threshold of happiness just, it grew because it was seemingly that that we as a family unit would not fail. Like if somebody was doing um, a little bad, we had people who could pick up the slack. Um, and we were willing to pick up the slack uh, because we knew, you know, when we needed that same kindness, we would get it. And so I think that kind of growing up in an environment like that, it led me to adopt a mentality that regardless of how bad things get, somehow, some ways, you know, my family or, or somebody close to me or somebody in the universe is going to come along and help me way out of it so there's no need to stress over it there's no need to be sad about it there's no need to you know cry and worry because it's gonna get better in the long run so that's where that kind of mentality came from it was fostered from a very young age of having a very a very supportive family unit thank you for that that's yeah you. i definitely appreciate that and we kind of threw you into this because i wanted to get it in and immediately meet somebody because you're meeting seku for the first time you two are meeting for the first time and we've known each other and we have conversations. Part of the, the goal of this is to really have deep conversations between black men. No content, just because we're black men, we'll just meet each other and have deep discussions. Mm-hmm. And so n- now we want to dig a little bit deeper because you've already started saying it, but we want to hear like, what is it that makes you who you are? What makes you Saudi? And so I think what makes me me is the ability to solve problems. And once again, I think that's the, that's something that, that came from a young age as well. I had a father who was a, a you know, general contractor, so he got in the construction trade. He was always taking things apart and putting things together. And so seeing that at a young age, I tried to do that. And I would take stuff apart and break it. And so I would see my father take stuff apart and fix it, and I'd take stuff apart and break it. And so through that process of breaking a lot of things, I learned how to fix things. As I've grown up, I have been able to take that kind of mentality, those that skill set and that ability to learn how to fix things and it has followed me throughout my life in a bunch of different ways. And so I am a person who I'm very outwardly uh, motivated. And so I'm always trying to fix everybody's problems, which can be a positive and a negative thing. Because a lot of times in trying to fix those problems, you take on their stress. Um, you take on their emotions. You take on their feelings because you have to be in that space to be able to fix the problem. 
I also think that, you know, having that fixer's mentality can kind of manifest itself in a negative way sometimes to the people you are trying to help because it seems like you're being a little overbearing. Um, It seems like you're being a little, you know, judgmental on the way people are doing things. But so sometimes it's hard for me to help people because I don't want to have that connotation put towards it. But at the root of it, that is who I am. And when I said earlier that I don't get too high, I don't get too low, I don't have a lot of stress, like like that is truthful, you know, 100%. So I feel like by me having uh, that threshold of happiness, that gives me a little bit more bandwidth to take on other people's problems and stress and, and try to help them through it. I think right now, so that's from kind of like a overarching mindset, but right now what I am and who I am is a, I feel like I'm back at my like adolescence because, you know, about to turn 35, I am in my first long-term relationship. Most of my relationships lasted, you know, maybe a college semester until we went home or something like that. And so this is my first uh, long-term relationship, which is now um, going on three years. And there are things that I'm learning as a, you know, as a partner that I never learned when I was doing what I was doing in college and, you know, the little mm-hmm. dating thing I was doing in high school. And, you know, learning how to operate as a unit with another person, um, even though we are not married. So we are still, you know, in terms of tax purposes, we are two still, still individuals who have the freedom and the leeway to operate and do everything on their own. But understanding that in the grand scheme of things, we're operating as a unit. And that's hard, you know, for somebody who is so used to doing everything on their own, kind of, you know, marching to the drum of their own beat gets frustrating to uh, have to you know change that sometimes mm-hmm. um, but understanding that it's for the betterment of the unit you have another thing i have to learn to be able to deal with because this is something that i plan to a lifelong thing which may or should be if i, I plan on that so mm-hmm. learning whatever unit and a partnership that i never learned growing up i mean that's something that we can dig a little deeper into a little later but yeah you know so i'm saying like that i think that's the journey that i'm on now is figuring out that balance between still being an individual but operating in a in a fulfilling relationship to make sure both people are fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah, why wait till later? Let's dig into it right now because that's a great segue into my next question. And definitely age and a relationship will change your life for sure. And so the next question we have is what are the different roles that you play? Why? And how do these roles impact who you are? So you can go go a little bit deeper because you were already going in that direction anyway. I'll say okay, it again. Yeah, so, the roles you play, the roles you play, why and how do these roles impact who you are? So are you saying the roles in life or like within my relationship? The roles in, in life in general, which includes your relationship. Okay. And so so I've already stated, you know, the fixer. So I am a person who fixes things. So I believe that that is, you know, every job that people have is, you know, you're pretty much problem solving, you know, regardless of what it is you do, you're solving a problem that somebody has. And I have taken that to heart and I like every minute of my day, everything that I do, even if it's walking from one store to the next or cooking a meal, I am thinking about what problem am I solving. I truly believe that if we as a um, you know community of human beings, if we look at every action as how, what problem am I solving or creating by doing this action, 
if we thought about that, we would be more intentional and more helpful to the world because we know our impact and we know how to negate the impact that we're having if it's negative. I believe I am a uh, motivator. I believe that anybody can accomplish anything if they put their mind to it. But that thing that you want to accomplish may, it may look a little different than what you're envisioning in the, you know, in your mind. I like to teach people. And so I am a, a wealth of just useless knowledge or knowledge that I think is useless sometimes because I, you know, I tend to hold on to a lot of things I read, a lot of videos I watch, like the information that's in it. I tend to hold on to it because I think every bit of information is interesting, regardless of how significant or insignificant it is. I have found that it usually becomes a point of conversation at one point or another throughout my years. And so I tend to want to retain as much information as I can. So when that conversation does arise, I have something meaningful to add to. I am a, in every sense of the word, a partner. So within my relationship, I am a partner with my girlfriend. Uh, we live together. So, you know, along with that comes uh, responsibilities of sharing space, sharing chores, and sometimes uh, going out on a limb and, uh, you know, doing, going above and beyond to make sure that something gets taken care of or handled. So I, I think I'm a partner in that sense, but I'm also a partner to my family members because uh, me and my older brother, well, I have a twin brother and an older brother. And so we are, you know, always starting new businesses and coming up with new ideas and starting new projects. So in that respect, I'm a partner to them because we all tend to come together and brainstorm on ways to make this thing, whether it's a business or, a, or an idea, to make it come into fruition. Or if it's even something that should be uh, considered at this point in time. I think those are right now my main roles. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up on a, a milestone of 35 years. And I'm sure, you know, once that the calendar day turns over to, uh, to my birthday, I will have a new responsibility that I think that will be uh, more appropriate for that stage in my life. But I think those are, are the main uh, roles that I have right now. Great. That's so brilliant to hear, you know, to hear somebody going through their life and seeing all the different roles and positions they're in, you know. And now I want you to kind of like reflect on that and see like, how are your relationships to other black men and other black people that are not men? I know you're, you're even in a group for black men, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think, so I'll talk about my time before, you know, moving to Atlanta and then my time after moving to Atlanta because those are two distinctly different ways that I operated, especially in um, respect to black men. Mm -hmm. So as I said, I grew up um, with a twin brother and an older brother, a father in the household. And so growing up, I was very close to at least three black men, right? Never knew either of my grandfathers. They both um, died before I, you know, had a chance to understand that I was meeting them or, or to get to know who they are. But I and I haven't heard many stories about them, so I don't really have a context to, to kind of compare or contrast black men in that age and the black men that I grew up with. But I had like a lot of friends back in Mississippi, like especially black men, and we were very intentional about you know, spending time together and having conversations that were more than just surface level. So we were talking about serious things. We all kind of frequented the same groups. So, you know, I was seeing these men, you know, two, three, four times a week because they were a part of my social circle. And these are people to this day that I felt like 
if something went wrong, I could call on them. They would be there to help or they would find something. And so I had that for 30 years, 30, 31 years of my life. Then I moved to Atlanta where I had friends in the area, but I just, it was just me, right? I'm the first member of my family, my immediate family to live outside of Mississippi. And so in that same respect, I'm the first person to kind of deal with that separation. Before I moved to Atlanta, the, the furthest away I stayed from my family was three hours, two and a half, three hours, and that was when I went to college. And so when I moved up here, I didn't really have a whole bunch of physical connections to black men. I just had the few friends from college that I knew, and we would see each other every now and again, but it wasn't as frequent as it was when I was in Mississippi. I didn't see my, my brothers as much, so my, my twin brother would come and visit me maybe once a month. My older brother probably came once a quarter, and that wasn't even to visit me. That was to, you know, because he had work in the area, he needed a uh, couch to crash on. But, you know, but, but having those opportunities to hang out with them when they did come, it was like the best time of my life when I was, you know, first moved up here because I needed that interaction. You know, I needed to be able to, you know, have that sounding board of another black man who I could talk to about serious issues about a year ago. So about, I, I mean, about two years ago, I joined the Gathering Spot, which is like a city social club. And I met at their one, I think it was three-year gala. I met a guy who owned the local tea shop. And so that's actually the tea shop that me and my girlfriend went to on our first date. So we had that connection. That was an immediate talking point for me to be able to approach this brother and open up a conversation. So through having a conversation with him, we talked for maybe two hours. And one of the comments that I told him, I was like, you know, sitting here talking to you, it feels like I'm talking to one of my brothers because uh, we have some of the same ideas, you know, mannerisms are kind of, you know, just the way we vibed off of each other. It felt real familiar. And so he told me, he's like, well, look, I'm going to tell you, I got this group that we just started a little while ago. And it's, it's, a, it's a space for black men to, you know, just come in and talk about stuff, like just talk about life and to be uh, honest and candid in a safe space. And so the name of that group is Undugu. And the, the name is uh, Swahili for Brotherhood. And so through being in that group, it has allowed me to, you know, find a kind of a new brotherhood. So that connection that I was missing by moving away from my family and moving away from my two brothers, I kind of got a little bit of that back from being in that group because we would go into these meetings and we would have very serious conversations. Not just like, hey, how you doing? You know, let's talk about women, let's talk about sports. It was like serious conversations about trauma that people were experiencing, you know, trouble people had with, you know, in their marriages. And so understanding that we aren't, you know, mental health professionals. And so there was only so far we were willing to take those conversations without saying, okay, this is something that's, that's more than what we can provide. But a lot of times going into those conversations, we would have like two hour, three hour conversations and a, and a brother would come to the next meeting and say, you know, after our meeting last, last month, I had the best conversation that I've ever had with my wife, right? And so just understanding how being in a room full of black men who want to go support you, but also who go, who go hold you accountable. Because it's not just a, it's not a parenting session either. It's not like, yeah, yeah, husband's always right, wife's always wrong. Like, you know, we call them brothers out and tell them, like, nah, you wrong. 
you know, your wife is right. You need to treat her better. You need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. So it's not just in there to motivate each other to be better so we can boost our ego. It's really us coming together to make each other better. And sometimes those are the hard conversations you have to have and letting people know, like, you are the problem. Um, and this is how we come together to make you a better person. And so that group has done a lot to help, you know, me get that connection. And I would encourage any brother who just is looking for that connection. It doesn't have to be Undugu, but there are plenty of other groups, both small and large, of black men who are getting together to have these same conversations. Mm-hmm. And so it's important that we have them and it's important that we help each other. And that's just one way to do it. Mm-hmm. I think the second part of the question is about how I interact with black people who are not men. And I think I've always operated from a position of respect, and that's because of my mother and my grandmothers, is that I've always, you know, held, you know, black women to a, to a very high standard. But just growing up and getting into my thirties, I, I really understood what that meant. And so when I was growing up, it was holding, you know, black women to a certain standard because that's what I was told I should do. I really didn't understand all of the ins and outs of it. I've just recently begun to realize that although in my mind I hold um, women to, black women to a, a very high standard, like some of my actions weren't meeting that expectation. Choosing to hang out with some of the people I was hanging out with in college, some of the things that happened, like that wasn't mirroring that kind of same mental state that I had of putting, holding black women to a very high standard and respecting them and, and making sure they were safe uh, in a world that is oftentimes not safe for them. And so I had to take a step back and really reevaluate, am I truly doing enough to make sure that black women are taken care of, to make sure they're not taken advantage of, to make sure they're not uh, preyed upon? And I think it was early last year, I realized that I wasn't. You know, I was just saying it because it sounded good, but and I was doing a little bit, but you know, I wasn't using the privilege that I had as a black man, even though we don't have as much privilege as white men, like we do still have a certain level of privilege. And I haven't been using my privilege to make the world a, a more livable place for black women. And so um, that's also part, of, you know, when I go back to the Udugu group, that's something that we, are, you know, are trying to encourage brothers to do is understand that we are here to help everybody. Like, although it's just a group of black men here, we are here to help the black community. And that's a burden that we have to take because, you know, women, black women have been, you know, standing on the front lines forever. Um, and we kind of have been reaping the benefits of that. And so it's time for us to step up. And those meetings are really us getting the playbook on how we do that. So it sounds like a combination of your upbringing, your appreciation for your mother, the women in your life, your father, your brother, transplanting here to Atlanta having a group of brothers who are challenging you to kind of be your best self. It's kind of like a holistic litmus test for you to help kind of see if you are at your capacity as a black man. And that, and that's something that is also feeds you and is necessary for you. And also something that you appreciate. Is that right? Yeah, that's what that's hundred percent right on. That's great to have context. And I'm sure you appreciate the fact that that's privilege too, just to have that in your life and something that not everybody has, but we see the benefits. And that's what we can learn is we see the benefits of kind of having those people in place in your life and that kind of accountability, which kind of leads me to another question. And you were kind of clear about what you want to do 
and being a fixer and, and some of your work, have there been any moments where your dreams, some of the goals you have and some of the things that you set out to do have been hindered because of you being a Black man? And if so, what did that look like and how did you respond? So I think the first taste of that came when I was graduating college. I went to, you know, a PWI, so a white institution, a University of Mississippi. And it was a bunch of, you know, experiences there. You're talking about in the Deep South, one of the biggest universities um, that is known for its racist backgrounds. A lot of fun there. And so, you know, number one party school in the nation. But also there was a lot of adversity there between, you know, black people and non-black people. And so I think that kind of was my first taste of it, uh, being in college. When I graduated in um, 2008, 2009, that was when the, the housing market crashed, right? And so there were no jobs for people in my field. I was a marketing major. So there were already a, a limited amount of jobs because, you know, everybody was losing their jobs because they lost their house and, and you know, other things. My name is, is Islamic. So it's, you know, Saudi, uh, and my middle name is Sindiata. And so when I put that on application, I already knew that, you know, although I had all the credentials, although I had, you know, all the right stuff on there, I wasn't getting callbacks. And so there was a time when I considered finding another way to display my name in order to get a better shot at getting these jobs because, I mean, I was coming out of college and I felt like, you know, that's what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to get a job and work, uh, and work my way up, make a bunch of money and, you know, live a, a long, happy life. But when I got back from college, I, I moved back to Jackson and that group of black men that I talked about earlier that were in my home state, they really helped me gain an appreciation um, and the power in the name. That's really the one thing that I can own. And I, you know, I was given that name for a reason. My mother and father uh, gave me that name for a very specific purpose. And so I felt like it would be just selfish for me to change it just because, you know, the world, the Western world didn't like that certain arrangement of letters, you know, to make the name that I was with. And so what I did was gain a greater appreciation of my name, really researched it, and I owned it. And so it got to a point to where I was like, well, you know, I'm not going. Like, I can't get no job with my name. Well, I'm just not going to work for nobody. I'm going to work for myself. And that, that really just motivated me to, you know, do everything I could to to be the the best self-employed person that I could. And luckily, it's worked out to this point. But what it also has done is, you know, when it gets to a point in meetings, for instance, when people mispronounce your name, now I take more pride in making sure they pronounce it right. But also when I am meeting people for the first time, I ask them how to pronounce their name. Because especially black men, because I know I went through all of the mispronunciations of my name. Any way you can mispronounce my name, I've heard it. And so, and, but nobody asks before trying to pronounce it, how do you pronounce it? And so I think something as simple as that is respecting people's names, especially for black men, because it's a lot of power in our names, especially the names that are non-traditional, because, you know, as we know, well, a lot of our names came from, but when we have the opportunity to, you know, rewrite that narrative by our parents not kind of holding to those naming conventions, you know, it's power in that. And so to be prideful of the name, I think that's what makes you prideful in, in your heritage, but also makes you a little bit more prideful in yourself. So that was the first kind of bit of adversity that I felt 
to where my plan got derailed by, you know, being a black man, that was from a naming aspect, but there was also a point in time where I would go through these stages of understanding how talented I am, but looking at people who didn't share my son's skin tone have more opportunities than me. And so it's probably a few months, and, and it probably happens once every four or five years where these, these few months where I'm just thinking and, and, and pondering, is it is being black the reason why I'm not getting these opportunities? And I, and I mean, I know the answer to that already. But instead of focusing on how to solve that problem, like how to, how to find the solution, I get stuck in the problem. And I think that takes me out of my nature as a, as a problem solver. Because, you know, as a problem solver, we do uh, understand the problem, but we focus on the solution, not the problem. When I get in those little, it's me focusing on the problem and not the solution. You know, when those two to three month periods happen, I have to remind myself that, you know, go back to my childhood, regardless of how hard it is now, regardless of if I'm not getting opportunities now because of my, you know, my race and my age or, you know, the way my hair looks or the way my nose is or the way my lips look, I'm going to come out on top of it. And so I just focus all my energy on the solution and, you know, it, like I said, it works out. But there was a point in time and I would have conversations about, you know, if you could start the world over and if you could be born again, but at your birth, you knew enough about the world to choose if you would be born black or if you would be born white. And I would have, you know, very in-depth conversations with friends about, like, honestly, if you knew how everything turned out, and you had the choice to be born black or to be born white, which one would you choose, knowing everything you know now? And, you know, most people say that, yeah, I would still be born black. And I think that is, you know, representative of the pride that comes with being black. Like, even though we have had all these hardships, we've been disadvantaged, we've been taken advantage of, we've been robbed, lied to, cheated on, you know, there is still something powerful in being black. And that's why we capitalize it when we write it, you know, we capitalize the beat. But sometimes I think about that is, you know, in, in a world where we are always taught to take the easiest path, right? We are always trying to figure out how to make life easy or how to, the simplest way to do something like truly, truly is that the decision that people would make? Like, would they, would you still choose to be born black if you knew everything that black people went through? And if you knew, you would probably have an easier life being a different, you know, a different nationality, a different race. And so I, I think that was a point uh, when I have those conversations. Also, when I think about, you know, the difference between, you know, blackness and other races and if being black is actually a hindrance, you know, progression or and what the solution is, if it is a hindrance, like how do we get past that in the long term for, you know, in perpetuity of history? Good. That's good. Well, yeah, I appreciate that, and I feel that. Now, you know, with all that, you're kind of in your, you know, your struggle, you know, right now. What is the one thing you often want to say out loud that you hold in? Because we know we're always holding these things in. Oh, the thing I often want to say is, okay, 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 okay. So the one thing, I'm very, like, I love Black people to death. Like, I think Black people are the saviors of the universe, and I think that we alone are going to be the ones who survive at the end of whatever comes in the long term. But I really like what I want to say when I'm out in public and scream is really like, fuck these white folks. Because right? <laughs> I truly believe that all the problems in the world are 
a part of, you know, their heritage and their privilege. And by that, you know, being the exception, they kind of hold on to those those same um, traditions that hold everybody else down while outwardly preaching about equality and equity and, you know, wanting the world to be fair and wanting to end world hunger and things. But, you know, their actions are, are, are different. I am a true believer that we don't need to have this melting pot community. You know, I don't think that white people and black people and Hispanic people and, you know, Asians and like all these different races and nationalities, like, you know, we want to, everybody wants a world where everybody can live next to each other and have all these names. I don't believe that. Like, I believe we can have a community of black people who make sure that this community of black people is okay, right? And then white people can have their community and they can make sure their community and white people are okay and, you know, so on and so forth for every race. As long as each community is respectful of the other communities and we are sharing significant resources. So, you know, I don't believe any community should be able to hoard essential resources like, you know, precious metals and water and electricity and, and things like that. Like you should not be able to hoard any of that stuff. But as long as your community is okay and you're working in tandem with the other communities to make sure the world is okay, like we don't have to be a melting pot in the grand scheme of, you know, on the neighborhood level. And that's because I feel like that black people are going to be the saviors of the world. So oftentimes our innovations and our genius gets taken advantage of and it gets stolen because we want to live in this, you know, kind of utopian melting pot society. And so I think that as long as we as black people are prideful about our own race, we're prideful about, you know, what we have to offer the world, but also prideful about our areas. Like, you know, the way our things look may not look like everybody else's looks, but as long as we're prideful about it and make sure that it's taken care of, that's enough. When we look at these uh, Western ideas of, you know, what success and look should look like, what wealth should look like, you know, that's when we start doing the things that reflect them. You know, one of the most egregious thing I think black men do is they look at white men's success as a an aspirational. Um, they want that same type of success, so they end up acting like white men, right? They end up oppressing other black people. They end up being bad partners in context to, you know, black men, but also to their black women, because in their eyes, Success means doing these things that a white man has done. And so I, I want that level of success, so I'm going to have to act like them. I think that's something that really, it really kills our identity as black men because we want, you know, we want those things, but we don't know how to, how to tweak that level of success to look like something that can be beneficial to our community in the long run. And so, yeah, like the, the thing I would yell is probably something that would get me, would probably get me in a lot of altercation. I live on the Beltline, so if I said it on the Beltline, you know, so I'd probably be in some big trouble. But, you know, know, I welcome it. And at the same time, it might liberate you in a different way. Part of it is standing your ground, and and at least you're being authentic. You can't use that. The reason why I picked those words is because it's frustrating to see that they don't get it. Like, they don't get They can't see beyond their own privilege. And, like, they just end up making problems worse even when they try to make them better because they just can't see beyond their privilege. And so, you know, a lot of times it's just like, like, y'all just stay out of it. 
Like, let us let us worry about this. Let us fix this. Y'all just stay out of it. And so, so make them stay out of it. And, and I think that's that's the approach that I would choose to take. And, you know, sometimes you gotta you gotta rattle some cages before folks really start doing what's right. That's a good answer, and I, I think it's safe to say that Maxime and I have had those same feelings, whether or not we said it out loud or not. I know I at least whispered under my breath in the present. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's good, and I could go kind of two different directions with this next question, but I'm going to lean toward, I'm curious, because you started to get into how you feel around white people and some of the things that are going on internally sometimes. And I know for me, and I think Maxine kind of experiences the same thing, it's like you, you deal with in the workplace or out in the world, microaggressions all the time. And we find ourselves kind of internally playing gymnastics, trying to figure out what to say, what not to say. And in the meantime, that's having an impact on our humanity. And so I wonder what kind of tools do you have or what do you do to kind of take care of yourself in light of some of the stress, anxiety, anger that you experience out in the world, in, in your own home sometimes? Yeah, and so I think the, the number one tool is like having a hobby. And that hobby doesn't always have to be something that is that produces a physical thing. My hobby is building. So I like to, you know, build stuff, like just create things, invent things, um, and come up with these ideas and then, you know, go to Home Depot, buy some materials and try to make this thing come to fruition. That's very therapeutic to me. Working with my hands is very therapeutic. So whenever I, you know, see a little bit of stress creeping in or whatever in a band, I do stuff that keeps me busy. That could just be, you know, going clean, clean up something in the house, you know, just doing something physical, something manual that you just can't sit and stew on whatever it is that, that you were thinking about. I think that learning how to, like figuring out what is that emotion worth? Like what is being upset at a microaggression worth, right? You know, white folks making you mad, like what is it worth to hold that in? You know, we know that stress is a killer. We know that, you know, we as black people tend to you know, hold stress in more serious ways than people in other parts of the world and other parts of the country. And so, what is it worth? And I always look at it kind of like a, you know, like a stock trader or a gambler, right? You don't ever want to, like, you come up with this strategy to only extend, you only lose so much, right? You're not going to lose it. But I think you go into those relationships that aren't that serious. You go into it with the same mindset. So, like, you know, if you got coworkers, yeah, you can you can respect your coworkers, but still only give so much to them. Because you know, when you give them too much power, that's when they that's when they take advantage of it. And so, you know, you go into the world with this mindset: I'm only going to allow people to impact me so much, um, especially strangers. Something that I am as a like when we were talking earlier about you know traits and who am I? Like I'm very patient. Like I'm patient and understanding almost to a fault because I built myself that way. You know, I don't give too much of myself to strangers in, in order for them to, you know, be able to manipulate uh, my emotions. And so there are times when, you know, something is going on, you know, like say we're at a restaurant or something, me and my girlfriend at a restaurant and something happens with the check, you know, something gets added that is incorrect or something gets left off. 
you know, the way that we approach those things is completely different. You know, I'm, I'm going to be a little more understanding. I'm going to be, oh, okay, let me, you know, people mess up, things happen. Let's figure out how to make it right. And so think about in life when that keeps happening over and over and over again. And especially as a black person, when sometimes those things are happening intentionally, happening intentionally because you're black. You know, I have developed a lot of patience and a lot of understanding until that outside and looking in, it can look like, you know, he's a pushover. But it's not, it's like, I'm not going to allow this to affect me. And so I think gaining that sense of awareness and control over your emotions to a point is something I would encourage people to do. And you can do that through meditation, through reading, through counseling. It's a lot of things you can do to help you gain that, that clarity. But I also think, you know, finding somebody to talk to about whatever it is that is frustrating you or that is stressing you out, that is not that stressful, right? So when we, when you're in, like, think about it in the household, if I have an issue with my girlfriend, sometimes I, you know, can't go talk to her about the issue that I have because I'm not thinking with a clear mind, I'm going off of all emotion. Like I said, I grew up with a twin brother who's my best friend, so I always had a sounding board. And so whenever something is eating me, I can go to him and say, let me tell you what happened. And we have these long, you know, 30-minute, hour-long conversations. And at the end of it, oftentimes, you know, I come from there saying, like, you know, I was wrong. You know, I approached this wrong. Or I did something that, that, that made the situation worse. And so having somebody who was honest and open enough to not just be a yes man or a yes woman, um, it's going to tell you like it is. So then you can go back to whatever that, that stressor is and approach it in the correct fashion. And, and you're not operating from an emotional state because if you're operating from emotions, then the other, if you're overly emotional, then the stressor is going to be overly emotional response. And that's not just talking about people. That's about anything. And you're not going to be productive. And so I think that as a problem solver, the path is always trying to figure out what's the most productive way to solve the problem. And that's not with extreme emotions. And so just really finding a way to keep emotions in check and, and calm down when you need to calm down, but bring them up when you need to bring them up. I think in protection of black women, we need to be very emotional, right? <laughs> we need to be very demonstrative when we're trying to protect our black women and our black children. But I think when we are that emotion outside of love and respect, like negative emotion doesn't need to be overwhelmingly directed at them. We need to find more productive ways to deal with that. And so I think that, you know, finding a hobby, finding a therapist, you know, finding a good book to read, you know, going out and walking in the sunlight. Like, these are all things that can help you deal with the day-to-day because it's always going to get better, but it can always get worse. Uh, so understanding, like I say, finding that happy, that, that threshold of happiness that you can operate in, that allows you to kind of block out all the negativity. But also understanding that, you know, that's an intentional thing that you have to do. It's not just go come just by by luck. Yeah, that's that's true. That's very true. And if we drill even into it, into the kind of unique situation that we're in right now concerning COVID nineteen, the pandemic, the global outbreak we're having, is there any special any you know, unique stressors that it puts on you or concern or anxiety that it puts on you with this going on right now? Yeah, so so one anxiety, you know, when I told you I wanted to go outside and say what I wanted to say, you know, I, that definitely stands true because I do believe that 
non-black people are the ones who made this thing worse by not taking it seriously. Uh, something that, that brings me uh, a certain amount of stress through this situation, like I say, I'm, I'm outwardly, my kind of thoughts and emotions and intentions are always outwardly focused. So understanding that the situation that we are in now where, you know, people are getting laid off, people who were looking for jobs can't find jobs, small businesses are probably going to end up having to close. And so figuring out a way as one person to be able to, to move the needle, to make sure the families that need assistance can get assistance, to make sure, you know, small businesses that probably won't be able to survive eight weeks of minimal revenue, finding ways to, you know, help out any way that I can. And so it's real stressful, you know, taking into account, like I said earlier, my privilege. Like, how do I use my privilege to make sure that at least some of the people I can touch come out as unscathed as possible, you know, at the end of this thing. I also, you know, I'm a, I'm an April baby, so, you know, it's a lot of celebrating that was going to happen in a few weeks that now I'm going to have to postpone. But that is the last thing on my mind, right? Because I want to make sure that that family that can't find food can get food. Right? I want to make sure that, you know, I'm not, being irresponsible and, you know, realizing that I'm a young, healthy black man and I'm, this thing probably won't affect me negatively either way. Thinking about how that affects other people, um, how other people could be impacted by the decisions that I make to be careless and to be reckless. So all those things, while being a prisoner in your own home, right, because you, you kind of want to want to adhere to that social distancing and, and trying to be out as well as possible so we can get the thing under control. You know, figuring out like the new normal for these eight weeks. And so it's, it's a learning experience because, you know, we've been doing it a different way. Like I've been doing it a different way for 34 years. And so now you're telling me I can't go outside and I can't be close to people. I could potentially, I'm not fearful that I would not have employment, but like I could potentially, you know, not be able to make money. Like, I would have never thought in a million years that this would happen. But now that it has happened, it's about how do we make sure that as many of us can come out on the right side of it when, when this thing is finally over. And that, like, that's something I think about all day, every day. Mm. I've made a kind of a pact with myself to support, like, my friends and family that have small businesses. I make it a made an effort to every week support a few of them, um, even if it's something that I don't need, because I understand that they don't have the luxury of waiting for people to shop. They don't have the luxury of waiting for people to need stuff because they may not be able to survive um, waiting on, on this to get better. So I made it a, an intentional effort to support first the black businesses that I know. Well, not just black businesses, all white friends that, that have small businesses as well and I support them even by just like buying gift cards, right? I may not use it now, but I can buy a gift card. And use it. But on top of that, making sure that families um, who need assistance can get assistance. And so that's by, you know, petitioning social media, you know, in this on Google group, we, we have a thing where we, you know, we ask almost every day, like, is everybody okay? Do you know anybody that needs help? Just on the basic necessities to, to get through this thing, because we want to make sure that our community is taken care of in this time when we see that, you know, the government may not be working in our best interest. And so just making sure that we can, can, can pick up the slack. And do what we're supposed to do as a as a community and as a as, you know global citizens. Like we're supposed to be helping each other. It's sad that it took you know something like this to get us to to be clean, right? 
and to respect people's personal space. Yeah. And to, uh, you know, provide financial assistance to your neighbor if they need it, you know, to deliver food to to the elderly and immune compromise. Like, it's sad that it took something like this for us to do it, but I hope that, you know, as all this leaves and as the market turns and as, you know, we get back to normal life, we, we remember these blessings that, you know, we don't have to wait for a pandemic to help each other. You know, we don't have to you know, wait for a pandemic to check in on our friends to make sure they're still okay, you know, to make sure that they're healthy and that they don't need anything. We don't have to wait for stuff like this. Like, we can do it intentionally all day, every day, and that's just going to make us a stronger community, which would then put us in the position to survive, you know, bigger and, and, and you know, worse outcomes than this. And so hopefully this is a, is a learning and a teachable moment for everybody who is experiencing it. And, and we really take that lesson to heart, and it makes us a you know a better global community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good stuff. It, it sounds like you know we're kind of learning a lesson about what it means to be ethical, and we are all kind of in a position where privilege is being neutralized, and we're all seeing our need to kind of do our part and you know pull somebody forward with us as well. That makes me, as we kind of wrap this up, because we don't want to keep you too long, I want to just ask a question about, in, in five years from now, this is 2020, 2025, with a lot of the vision and the kind of the passion that you have around your work and what you want to do for your people as well. What does 2025 look like for you? And coupled with that question, I want to ask too, what does it mean for you to be free? What does it take? What does it look like for you to be fully free and fully liberated as a black man in these United States? Okay, and so those two questions do kind of fit hand in hand with my, you know, what I look like uh, in five years and what my world looks like in about 2025. So I definitely understanding that money makes the world go around. By 25, I do expect to be in a much better financial situation. I'm not in a bad financial situation now, but I plan to be, you know, exponentially in a better financial situation. And that's not looking at it from a, you know, selfish or individualistic standpoint. That's looking at it from the standpoint of at least what I can do personally. If I have more money, I can do more for the community just personally, right? from my own pocket. I'm a person who believes that excessive amounts of wealth is immoral. I don't believe people should be able to hoard pockets of money beyond what it takes for a couple of generations to live off of. And I often get a lot of flack on that because they say, well, you want everybody to, you know, people should be poor. Like, no, people can have wealth. I don't think wealth is a bad thing. I don't think, you know, taking care of generations beyond you is a bad thing. But when you look at individuals who are worth more money and, and hoard more money than they can ever spend in 10 lifetimes, that's immoral because there are people, it's only so much of the pilot that's available. You know, money isn't a something that you just keep creating and keep getting out. Like it's a pie that once somebody takes a piece of the pie and takes it off of the, off of the board, you can't get that piece of the pie back. So understanding that a lot of our power is going to come from a ma- like getting money so having money in circulation, having the money to spend, and then we have to use that money 
in productive ways to make sure the community is taken care of. So in five years, I plan to be, you know, wealthy for the benefit of the community, right? And so that means using my money to start programs for Black youth. That means using my money to take care of, help take care of people who are, you know, in situations that are beyond their control. You know, making sure that every neighbor, because I believe although we have immediate neighbors who live next door, I think every every person is potentially a neighbor. So just make sure that the neighbors in your community are taken care of. And one way to do that is by making money and then using that to make sure the community is straight. That's what freedom means to me. Like I don't really care about amassing money. You know, I want to have a roof over my head. I want to have clothes and I want to have food. But you know, in terms of spending money selfishly, you know, I just want to hoard money to be able to buy bigger and better things. That's not something that motivates me. Something that motivates me is, you know, making sure that people are taken care of. And so, you know, by, you know, being able to help people, that's what I think is going to ultimately bring me freedom uh, as a black man, because I derive happiness from the happiness of others. And so as long as I'm thinking in a selfish way, like I want to buy them a better car, I want to get a bigger house, that is to the detriment of my neighbor sometimes. And so that's not going to bring me freedom. That's going to bring me burden from the perspective of how I'm thinking. Like I would be thinking I could have used this money in a better way. Like I could have done something, you know, more productive with this money. And so by being able to help the community, you know, in this next five years, I think that's what's truly going to make me feel free. Because there's some things we're not going to be able to change. Like, we're not going to be able to change the government. Um, we're not going to be able to change the perception of people who discriminate against us. Like, we're not going to change that in five years. But what we can change is how we interact in our community and redefining what a community is and redefining what freedom is for us, taking out the context of the Western measures of success and kind of looking more towards how we operated back when we were tribes, right? When we made sure people were taken care of. And I'm not saying that tribes were perfect. I'm not saying those were the most ideal living conditions, but you know, we can we can take some good things from the way they operated and bring that into our modern society and use that to to understand that that you know that was a point when we were free, at least when you talk about what happened you know, at a certain point when we were, we were, our freedom was taken away from us. And so I think redefining what community looks like and redefining what freedom looks like personally is going to be my goal for the next five years and beyond. And I hope to be able to teach that to, to more people. I hope to be able to, to interact with more brothers and sisters that can, you know, kind of get on board with my way of thinking. Um, understanding that you can, you can have money and help the community. Like, yeah, it's not an either-or type of thing. Oh, brilliantly said. I really appreciate it. I think this whole thing was about really introducing the whole self of a Black man rather than the introductions that we just normally give. So with this, we want to give you just a chance. Anything else you want to say that would add to your introduction? That who you are, what you're about, anything else? So about, you know, this conversation really did bring out a lot. So I would say I'm going to reintroduce myself. So I am Sadi Thompson. I am an agent of the community, um, an agent of change, problem solver that is working to make sure that all of our communities have the resources that they need to be able to survive in a, in a world that is often against us. Nice. So well, beautiful. It was great.
that's the way to close it, Sadi. And we are definitely honored to have you on. Learned a lot about you and a little bit more about ourselves from hearing from you. And we are wishing you and your family, your friends, your community, health, wealth, prosperity, and blessing uh, during these difficult, challenging times, but certainly times that we're able to rise to the occasion. So we appreciate you, brother. And I appreciate y'all having me on and giving me an opportunity to, you know, share a little bit of myself. I would have never thought uh, a little black boy from from the Mississippi Delta uh, growing up would have been on, on a podcast. And so, you know, it's just amazing yeah. how, you know, what, what 30 years can be. So I appreciate y'all for having me and letting me tell my story. Thank you. Um, thank you. My brother from Jackson, it was so helpful to hear how your home environment developed you into the problem solver that you are today. Then how you developed community through the brothers of Ndugu when you came here to Atlanta. I also distinctly understand the disrespect for our quote unquote non-Western names and modeling that respect for the names of others. And again, we recorded this one very early in the pandemic of pandemics and your insights still ring true at least seven months later. Thank you, Sadi. This has been another episode of Let Me Introduce Myself. Come back for the next episode where we hear from our brother Khalil. Mm-hmm.